0: You know, we've been talking about the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is kind of an interesting book. It's a difficult book. It's really, there's a lot going on there. And uh, the book of Hebrews is, really, the writer is answering a question because he's got people that he's writing to that are struggling. And they're struggling with the fact that they're saying, okay, so if God loves me, and He has a plan for my life, why is life so stinking hard? Why is it so hard? And He's going to give them, uh, He's going to show them that, life is hard, but there is a way to not just survive, but to thrive, even in the midst of storms. And it's about, it's about putting an anchor down in that storm and finding Jesus as the anchor of hope. And so that's kind of where the book is going. Because he's dealing with people that are honestly fearful and discouraged and going through persecution. And so in the passage today, it's very interesting because the writer is going to say, you have a God who's unlike the Greek gods. Because in that day, in that world, you had the Roman gods and the Greek gods. The Greek gods were these uninterested. They were kind of stand back on the sidelines, watch humanity, the mess of humanity, and they would never intercede. They would never kind of help. They just kind of were there, you know? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have a different God Than that. And so that's what we want to look at. He's going to say that this God, unlike the other gods, gets personally involved in our lives. And so that's what we want to look at. How does Jesus get personally involved? Why did Jesus come? Why did he come to this earth? And there's four reasons why. The first one is Jesus came to be a perfect leader. Jesus came to be a perfect leader. So I want to start reading at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what the writer says. He says, Furthermore, it's not the angels who control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the Scripture says, What are mere mortals that you should think of them, or the Son of Man that you should care for Him? Yet you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What then do, uh, what do we see is, excuse me, let me try that again. What we do see is Jesus, who is given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to make many children into glory. And it is only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So what he's writing about here is very interesting. He's saying God intended that his creation, that this world would be managed, would be ruled by Adam and Eve and by their future generations in the way that he desired. He said... Here's the earth, now care for it. Be caretakers of it. So he has a picture of Genesis 1 and 2 here. The creation of man and the garden, a perfect place, a perfect environment. He says, now care for the garden. Take care of the garden. And then you read Psalm 8, which is basically, he's walking down through Psalm 8. He's going to apply it to mankind in general. But he's going to ultimately apply it to Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate person in Psalm 8. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that we're to be caretakers of this earth. We're to watch over it. We're to we're to take it, take care of it, and and we're responsible to bring justice and peace and unity to this world. And uh, you know, many world leaders have come to try to rule over God's creation and rule over God's earth. Right? They have. I mean, you go back to Egypt to the pharaohs, and what did the pharaohs do? Well, a number of the pharaohs basically what they do? They 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 punish God's people. They kept them as slaves. They they. They tried to rule, but they ruled with an iron fist and made life miserable for the Jewish people. Uh, how about Alexander the Great or the Caesars or Attila the Hun? They all intended to rule over God's creation, but they left death and destruction in their path. You think of more recently Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Uh, they all sought to rule over God's creation, but again, they did it with an iron fist. They did it to, with destruction and, and and you know killing people and and just genocide and all these different things. They all sought to rule over the weak and to use them and abuse them. They all saw uh, ruling as a power play, a way to gain power and to use it on other people. And yet, that's not God's desire for mankind. God didn't place us on the planet to rule over and to maim and to destroy and to have sex trafficking and to... Have uh, disease, you know, all this, this terrible, these these terrible the terrible things that are going on in human society. In fact, God has an intention for. By the way, if you are a, a boss or you're you're in 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 a leader in some organization, and you say, "What does God want me to do? How does God want me to lead?" Micah six eight is the answer, and this is what the the, the prophet says to to through Micah to us. O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what He requires of you. Do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. That's a great life verse. If you don't have a verse, a life verse, that you should memorize and say, this is what my life... This is like the, the arrow where my life needs to go. It's to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. And basically, essentially, what he's saying in this the passage of Hebrews, he's saying God intended that we would rule and reign over His creation and over one another this way, but we're not. It's not happening. This is not happening. We certainly aren't ruling up. All things aren't under our feet in a in a saint, and not in a way under our feet in power, but under our feet in in a Micah six eight way, in a way that we're ruling and reigning the way God intended. In fact, we can't even rule and reign over our own lives. I love what C.K. Chesterton he he summarizes uh, where we are today in society, and he says this: whatever else is or is not true, the one this one thing is certain: man is not what he was meant to be. Instead of having the mastery over creation, he has mastered. By creation. Instead of ruling, he is enslaved. Instead of having strength, he is in weakness. Instead of being an ally of God, he is a rebel against God. Instead of being the glory of God, man is the shame of the universe. You know, the Bible says, the heavens declare, proclaim the glory of God. The trees shout to the Lord. And man supposedly we were meant to be the pinnacle of creation. And we're stinking it up. (laughs) I think he's right. I think he's right. So the first reason that Jesus came was the the intention that God in Genesis 1 and 2 was quickly lost in Genesis 3 in the fall of man. And now we live in a fallen world and we don't treat each other with respect. We're not looking for justice and mercy. We're not looking for peace and unity. We're looking to to have power over people. We're looking to manipulate people. And so Jesus doesn't just sit on the sidelines and watch. He jumps into the mess. And He becomes a, a human being he enters in to show us how to rule and to show us a way back for God's creation. He, he, and, and the interesting thing is he didn't do it by gaining power. You know, There were many people that came to Jesus and they said, you know, it's time. His brother said, hey, you know, it's time. You ought to get down there and tell them who you are. You know? Peter says, isn't it time? You know, <laughs> Isn't it time for you to step up and be the ruler that we want you to be? And Jesus always declined power when it was given to him. He... He is bringing creation back, but he's not going to do it through gaining power. He does it through suffering. He does it through suffering, which is like, it's 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 what's going on in the New Testament. It's just this upside down principle, because basically Jesus says, "You'll find life through my death." You'll find it's just exactly the opposite of what we expect. He, He says you'll be great in my kingdom by becoming a servant. Jesus actually said that. He says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Become the servant of all. So Jesus comes in and says, I don't don't want you to come in and rule and reign over one another. I want you to serve one another. I want you to have peace and justice and mercy. Uh, Jesus basically says, blessing comes through sacrifice. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be a servant. So that's the first reading. Jesus came to be an example of what we should be. He came to show, blaze the trail, of what it means to be a leader. What it means to be a leader in His world, in His kingdom. And secondly, He came to be our big brother. Notice if you go down to verse uh, 11 in Hebrews, it says this, So now Jesus and the ones He makes holy have the same Father. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. And he also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. So Jesus is basically, uh, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is identifying with us so much that he would call us his brothers and sisters. Now, I think that's pretty cool in in, in a lot of ways. One of the ways is pretty cool is, don't, you, don't we all have these... Uh, maybe siblings or parents or aunts or uncles or cousins that you go, yeah, those really wouldn't be the superstars of the family. I really don't want to express that I'm related to them. You know, kind of downplay that. You know, it's a weird Uncle Frank or whatever. You know, we all have those relatives. By the way, you may be that in, in, in the family. You may think someone else is, but you, maybe you are. But here's the thing. Jesus says that. I mean, when Jesus says, that's my brother, that's my sister. I mean, we're all the weird brother and sister. I mean, that's essentially what it comes down. And it says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. But it's even more than that. The writer of Hebrews is making a really important theological statement here. He's saying that Jesus, this God who has been God from before time as we know it, He always has been, He always will be, He is God. He jumped into humanity and became a human being. He's fully God and He's fully man. That's what He's trying to say here. He's not just... A God who is looking down or a God who came to earth and He says He didn't become an angel. He became a man. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, over 2,000, He became a man. He was born a baby. He was fully God and fully man. And, and this is really important because there's a number of, uh, of uh, cults out there. And they'll always they'll all, and by the way the early church a lot of the argument on the early church was who was Jesus was he God or was he man. And, and what, what did that look like? And some people said, well, he was fully God, but he never really became man. He, in fact, he was a phantom or whatever. He, was, he, never really took, he never really became human flesh. And John writes a little bit about that. And he says, we touched him, we grabbed him, we hugged him. He was human, right, essentially. And then there's the other side that says, well, he's fully man, but he wasn't God. I mean and this is where liberal theology comes in today. Well, Jesus was a great teacher. We can learn from him. We can learn from a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of rabbis, there's a lot of you know, Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus. You know, there's all these great teachers. He's a great teacher, but let's not call him God. Come on, you know. And and essentially what you know, you, you, you come to the place and all the cults, the modern day cults basically say, I mean, even Mormonism teaches that Jesus and we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus and Satan are brothers. And uh, it all comes down to this. What the writer of Hebrews would have none of that say, no, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the God-man. And He became man because only as He became man could He share in our suffering. Only could He... Under, he, he finally, the crescendo of His identification with us is when He gave His life for us on the cross. So he didn't just stand off and watch and say, what a mess. He dove in. And he was consumed by it. Have you ever had a situation where uh, you're struggling through maybe a physical ailment or you're going through a difficult time emotionally or with a relationship and you're talking to somebody and you know the person you're talking to doesn't have a clue about what you're going through. They've never been through it. And they say, I know how you feel. And you go, shut up. You do not. You have no idea how I feel. And then there's another, you know, person you sit down with and you share. But you know, you know this person has been through it. I mean, they've been through it and back and through it and back. And you're kind of like, I don't even know if I should even bring this up. Because, I mean, compared to what I'm going through, they've been through ten times worse. And you share it and they say to you, I know how you feel. And you go, yeah, you do, don't you? And the writer of Hebrews says, we have a, a brother who is so identified with us, took on human flesh, and he suffered. And he knows, what, listen, he knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to have all your best friends just leave you high and dry. He knows what it is to have your own family doubt you. He knows what it is to, to, be, to be insulted and misrepresented and, and, and mocked for doing the right thing. He knows that. He knows what it is to go through incredible suffering. Probably some of the most brutal things. You see, Jesus not only was willing to be identified with us, He offered Himself for us. Jesus tasted death for us. He blazed the path through death. Can you imagine? God became man, suffered and died for us. He's so identified with us, He became like us. He's not ashamed of us, and He's willing to say, I am so human that I would call you my brothers and sisters. And I came to make you, my brothers and sisters, through my death. Not through exercising power, but through being a servant. A servant of all. He came to seek and to save the lost. Number three, Jesus came to be our dying Savior. Hebrews 2, let me pick it up again. Verse 14. Because Jesus... Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves uh, to the fear of dying. Now, Jesus is... The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is doing something really significant here. He's saying, and by the way, you may not know this, but you have three enemies. Every one of us in this room has three enemies. Maybe you didn't know that. You say, "I have like, I think eight or nine enemies already." You know, I mean, I got a lot of enemies. Well, you got three more. So if you have seven, now you have ten. All right, so you can walk out being blessed, saying, "I have more enemies than I thought." Well, you have three enemies that are very clearly laid out in Scripture. And they are sin, death, and the devil. You have three enemies. So I want to talk about each one of those just very quickly. The Bible In the Bible, sin is seen as slavery. That we're all born slaves to sin. That we don't do what we should do and we do what we shouldn't do. That we are messed up. That we live lives that are filled with addictions and broken relationships because of an inner problem. We are alienated from God. We struggle in our lives. We seek significance and satisfaction and security. And many young girls will say, if this boy says he likes me, I will give myself to him because then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. And it's going on all over. And this is what we're dealing with. And that's just one example. We all do that. W- women do that with their children. saying, I'll raise these children. They'll make me significant. They'll make me feel like I'm, my, my life matters and I count. Or a guy will go and say, if I have this job, then I'll be significant. Then I'll feel secure. Then I'll feel like my life has me. And and it's all and we'll do whatever we can to get those things in our lives. We feel alienated to God. And Jesus came and dove into our life, dove into our world. And he lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. And he broke the power of sin. And he says, when you come to me, you're forgiven. When you come to me, you're significant. When you come to me, you're secure. When you come to me, you'll find satisfaction you'll never find anywhere else. No other human being, no job, no pursuit will ever give you the satisfaction that only I can give. Nobody can give you the forgiveness that I can give. Nobody can give you the security. He says, you know, we worry about a lot of things. We worry about what we'll wear, what we'll eat, and all that. See, look at the look at the... the, the flowers in the field. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Look at the birds. They don't have barns, but I take care of them. Don't you think I can take care of you if I take care of them? So Jesus comes in and he identifies with us and he says, it is over. It is finished. Sins are paid for. The Bible says that our sins are are separated as far as the east is from the west. Then when we're forgiven. So, the one enemy we have is sin. And Jesus says, I came to break the power of sin. There was a point where you were a slave to sin, but you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you can say no to sin. You can say yes. You can be a different person. I can change you from the inside out. You can become a new person. The second enemy is death. You know, I think most of us, if we're, if we're honest, we probably would say, yeah, we fear death. Um, even, even people who don't believe in the afterlife, that just, just believe, you know, materialists who say, you know, you live, you die, you're done. You know, it's over. Um, by the way, great people to have you come visit you on your deathbed. Well, it's just about time, and then you're going to be dead. You know, I mean, oh, thanks for that. That makes me feel so much better. Uh, or, you know, you go to a party, and you, if you want to ever put the brakes on a, a, a conversation, just change the subject to talking about death. I mean, that'll that'll put it, people will find reasons to get away from you real quick when you start doing that. I mean, it gets really quiet when you start talking about death. Why is that? Why is that? I think it's because most of us, if not all of us, within ourselves think that death isn't right. That death is cheating us out of something. That we were made for something more than death. That we were made for more than this life. We were made for eternity. There's something about eternity within us. It says when death cuts that short, we don't think that's fair. We don't think that's right. We feel like there should be something more. And we all want our lives to count. We want our lives to be significant. We want to feel like my life mattered. Somebody cared about me. Somebody knew me. I want to be loved. I want to feel like my life made a difference and people cared that I was alive or not. But here's the thing. If there only is this world and you live and you die and you're done, then really, how do you make meaning out of life? Because let's, let's be really honest. Let's be brutally honest. A hundred years from now, no one's going to remember you. I mean, think... And I'll just ask you, do you know anybody in your family tree that you think about today that lived 100 years ago? Fifty? Really? I mean, seriously. Is, you know how, why it's so quiet in here right now? It's quiet in here because we struggle with death, and we struggle with the idea that if I die and that's it and it's all over, it's like, well, what am I doing? And the writer of Hebrews basically says, because Jesus came and not only died on the cross, but rose, our names will be remembered. Our lives will be significant. I mean, Jesus doesn't just remember your name. By the way, I'm going to reveal a secret, and I've done it at all the services. I'm not good with your names. So I fake it sometimes. (laughs) There, I said it. I feel better. I just don't. But I'll tell you one thing, that Jesus remembers your name. He doesn't just remember your name. He remembers the very hairs on your head. Your life is important. Your life is significant because Jesus is alive. And because He's alive one day, if you put your place in Him, you will live. And you will be, really, more alive than you are today. Essentially, that's what it goes down to. And so, the writer of Hebrews is saying that there is hope because we know that there's life after death. And that means our life right now is significant and is important and we will spend eternity with a God who knows our name, who loves us, who entered into our world and will spend it with other people that we love. And that gives you hope. That gives you meaning. And that's why Paul can in 1 Corinthians 15 look death in the eye and say, death, where's your sting?" You're not so bad. You're not so tough. What are you going to do? Kill me? I'll just go to be with God in heaven. So what else is new? You got something else? Because that's not much. That's essentially what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ is alive, death has lost its sting. Sin is defeated. Death is defeated. Devil. Let's go on the last one. Devil. So, we all have this enemy, The devil. And by the way, let's just clear things up. Jesus and the devil are not brothers. Jesus is not a created being. The devil is. The devil is a fallen angel. He's a created being, a fallen angel. He's not omnipresent, meaning he's not everywhere. He's not omniscient, meaning he doesn't know everything. He's not God, okay? Jesus isn't in this, this WWF power struggle with the devil hoping that He can get a move on him in the last minute and win the match. In fact, He won the match on the cross when He said it is finished. It's over. Done. And so, you have to understand... And by the way, there's nobody in this room that I'm aware of unless you are like a spiritual mover and shaker in the kingdom of God that I don't know about. And that and could be. I don't know. I don't want to downplay it. But I don't think the devil knows you. But he does have minions who are seeking to destroy you and put your face in the mud in front of God and say, ha, ha, look at this, you know. So, there is an attack. And... and but you may be here and you go, wait a minute. If you're telling me the devil is defeated, I still feel like there's oppression and that there's times where there's, a, there's evil in the world and it seems like it's alive and well. It's not bad. I mean, it just seems like it's breaking out all over. So if the devil has been defeated, why is there so much evil and why does it seem like the devil is having a heyday? Good question. Do you remember at the end of... Uh, Really, the one battle, the Battle of Normandy in World War II and the beaches of Normandy, uh, we call that D Day because it was a decisive day, the victory, the, the Allies pushed back Germany, and, and they knew at that moment that the war was won, that Hitler knew, that it was, and the world knew at that time that the, it was just a matter of time, but it was like, you know how, you know, if you're arm wrestling, you've got them like this, and it's like, you're going to win. And it was like that. D-Day was like, we lost a lot of lives, but it was, it was the key monumental battle of World War II. And But here's what happened. There was D-Day and then there was V-Day. V-Day was Victory Day. That was the day where Germany, Germany basically gave up, surrendered. Now, between D-Day and V-Day, there was a lot of blood loss. There was a lot of you know, pocket battles. There was a lot of loss of life and destruction that happened as Germany kept backing up and kept destroying and killing and maiming and doing all that destruction but D day came and then it was all over. Here's where we're at spiritually. On the cross Jesus said, "It is finished." D day. The victory is won. You go to Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22 that's D day. Where death and sin and the devil will be vanquished forever. It hasn't happened yet. He's still fighting. He knows he's lost, but he can still do a lot of damage. That's where we're at right now. So if it seems like you're in the middle of a spiritual battle, you have somebody who doesn't want to give up and doesn't want to lose and want to do as, does, wants to do as much possible damage as possible. And so that's where we're at. But Jesus has won the victory. So your enemies, knowing Jesus means that you have power over sin. You could say no to sin. Knowing Jesus means that death no longer... You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to feel like your life is is going nowhere. You, You know that there is a God who rose. And because Jesus rose, so too we who have placed our faith in Jesus, we will rise too. And the devil has been defeated. Here's the last reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to be our divine advocate. Verse 17, it says, We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Now what he's saying there is very significant. The descendants of Abraham are us. He's essentially saying, uh, he's not talking about Jewish people. He's talking about, he could be Jewish people, Jewish Christians. But he's essentially saying, spiritually, anyone who has trusted in the Messiah, trusted in Jesus, is a seed, a descendant of Abraham, a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So he's saying, we also know that the Son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. And that's us. Therefore, it it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help when we are being tested. Jesus goes before the Father and represents us. He's our advocate, he's a lawyer, he pleads our case before the Father. He's not only our Savior, he's our advocate. And when the enemy brings charges against us, Jesus basically says it is finished. Now, here's what happens. 1 John 2 says this My dear children, I'm writing you this, uh, to, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Don't sin, he says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So this says that we have somebody who goes between, between us and the Father and pleads our case. Now, he doesn't plead innocence. And Jesus doesn't go, you know, when we sin and we confess our sin, Jesus doesn't say, okay, and the accuser comes, oh, okay, we got one. He, you know, they sin. And Jesus doesn't go, no, they didn't. That wasn't a sin. They didn't really mean it. You know? No, He doesn't do that. He says, you're right. They're sinned. Guilty. But forgiven. It is finished. See, Jesus doesn't plead our innocence. He pleads that our sins are paid for. That's why Jesus says, on the cross, your sins are paid in full. He doesn't plead you're innocent. He pleads paid in full. when the Puritan uh, preacher, Thomas Hooker, was dying, His friends tried to comfort him on his deathbed, and they said, Be of good cheer, Thomas. You're going to receive your reward. His response was, No, brother. I'm going to receive mercy. I'm going to receive mercy. And that's what we want. Mercy. So why did Jesus come? He He came to show us how to lead. He jumped into humanity to show us how to lead. How? As a servant. Not as a boss, not as a tyrant, but as a servant. He fully identified with us by giving himself on the cross. He defeated our three greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And he came to defend us so that he could defend us before the father and before the accuser. That's the God we have. So no matter what life throws us, no matter what circumstances come into our lives this week, no matter what situations occur, we know that we have a solid place to put our anchor of hope, and it's Jesus Christ. So we can hold our heads up. Because we know when the enemy comes to attack us, we have somebody who's pleading our case. Not throwing us under the bus, but pleading our case. We know that we have somebody who's not far away, but somebody who's intimately involved. So when we go through difficult times and we've been betrayed or we've been uh, lied against, uh, we've been uh, maligned, we've been uh, physically abused, we have a God that says, I understand what you're going through. Uh, That's the God we have. So the writer of Hebrews says, be of courage, be of good cheer. You have a God who understands, a God who walks with you, and a God who loves you. A God who ultimately says, I'm proud to call you my brothers and sisters. Would you stand with me and let's pray. And so, Father, we are so grateful and so thankful for Jesus that He isn't this far-off, unconcerned deity, but He is a personal God who became human for us. Uh, one who is delighted to call us His brothers and sisters. And one who is willing to give his life. We are so blessed, Father. And we are so grateful. And we thank you for Jesus. Our Savior, our Advocate, our Leader, our Brother. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.